What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Off the Dome Radio. Today, we sit down with Zachary Green. And this was a fun one. He uh, he reached out to me via LinkedIn. And I always think that's kind of exciting when people reach out to either Tim or I on a different platform. They see what we're doing, what we're posting, and ask to be on the show. So Zach and I had, had a phone call and thought it would be a good episode. And so we got to sit down with him for a little bit. He is an international best-selling author. He's also a serial entrepreneur, a former Marine veteran, and most recently a podcast host. So we kick things off. We kind of get right into it. And Zach covers his time in the Marines. Uh, then that he launched into being a volunteer firefighter, you know, still wanted to help people. And how being a firefighter kind of launched him into being an entrepreneur. He tells about you know, this near-death experience while he was fighting a fire and couldn't find his way. And so his business, LumaWare Safety, uh, helps firefighters you know, find each other, you know, make sure that they can see through the smoke. So it's uh, an illumination technology uh, that goes on their gear. And he's also into you know, exit and safety science too. They're energy-free, so doing things a little differently in that luminescent space and has done very well uh, with that and covers solutions that uh, he's had to face, uh, hurdles within his company, lessons he's learned. He goes into a deep dive about cash flow and how taking too big of an order can actually ruin and tank your business. And then we ask him about some pivots that he has had to made with that business and gets into some things where you know he had to Stomach some some harder decisions, uh, but for the good of his company and the long run. So, Tim, what did you think about our conversation with Zach today? Yeah, I loved it. I, I loved everything about this conversation. Even though he has built a thirty million dollar business and it's it's been very successful for him, I found out it, it's not what defines him. There's so much more uh, to Zachary that, that, that we learned about um, where he got the entrepreneurial mindset. Um, problems he faced and kind of we just learned about his journey and I thought there was a lot of lessons to take from that so we asked him about uh, what he's learned as a leader um, as he's built his company he talks about like hiring mistakes he's made uh, things that he's had to do to kind of um, make this make sacrifices for the good of his business um, that allowed him that freed up time for him to do other stuff as well um, talks about what it means to create meaningful partnerships uh, whether it's through with manufacturers or with with business people or anybody who he's come into contact with. Um, and then it goes into like what motivated him to write his book, um, the trauma that he was going through while he was writing that, uh, his motivation to start his podcast. He gives a little teaser into his podcast and what he does there. A lot of, and he even cites some, some stories that um, made me want to listen to his podcast. So um, I, I think that was a great thing to learn about there and talks about what he's done to uh, really get involved with his community and with politics and especially after just moving down to Hilton Head so so recently. So um, I thought that was interesting to hear about. And then obviously we asked about what his future plans are and um, how he wants to be remembered. And I thought that was a very exciting answer. Um, I think uh, anybody who is going through a tough time in their life, who has gone through a tough time in their life, I think will find some type of value from this episode. And um, I, I know you guys are going to love it. Without further ado, episode 176, Zachary Green. Yeah, for our listeners, maybe just, uh, like I said, I know you and I have chopped it up a little bit, but maybe introduce yourself, kind of who you are, what you're doing, and um, how we got here, and we'll dive into the weeds as we go along. Sure. So uh, my name is Zachary Green. I'm coming in from Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, and it's kind of funny. We just moved down here uh, several months ago, and I am eight miles away from Paris Island Recruit Depot. You can literally see it from the beach in front of my house, and the reason I share that is my my life and my journey has come full circle because it really started there at Paris Island back in the 90s when I really experienced what the true warrior's journey is. And that is this challenge and difficulty and adversity and how it shapes you for your crucible. And what was amazing is I had a lot of challenges growing up. I went to eight different schools from kindergarten all the way through high school Montessori school, Catholic schools, private schools, public schools, you name it. My parents did everything they could to, to take care of me and to help me. And it's funny because they call it ADHD when you're in school. But when you get out of school, it's called multitasking. And every great <laughs> entrepreneur I know is a tremendous multitasker that's very energetic, you know, but in school, that's not a good thing. So um, 
for me, again, they, they provided a lot for me. They came from an affluent family. I struggled a lot at boot camp. It was very, very difficult physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, everything. Um, but the guys that grew up in the coal mines of West Virginia and the ones that grew up in the projects, Louisiana, they didn't have a problem with boot camp. They got three meals a day. They weren't used to getting three meals a day back when they were home. They could handle that stress. And that really causes intellectual curiosity in me is why is it that the people have it harder end up being easier when the crisis and the conflict comes? And that's really, you know, where my story began and, and ultimately took me to where I am today. That's fantastic. So you were in the Marines was in the Marines about 50, maybe 60 pounds ago now, depending on how much <laughs> I had this weekend. Um, got out of the Marines in 99. Two years later, September 11th happened, uh, a day obviously uh, that affected our country deeply. And, and I felt obligated to, to do something and, and give back to my country. And and just, I had a lot, I guess you'd call it survivor's guilt, you know, that my buddies were out there hooking and jabbing with the enemy and I wasn't. And I trained so long for so many years and never got a chance to practice my craft. So I joined a local volunteer fire department. Now, at the time, I um, my full-time job was at Eli Lilly and, and brand marketing and development and strategy and, and training. And I learned at that time, I always knew I was going to be an entrepreneur ever since I was a little kid. But I think entrepreneurs fail before they even get started when they just focus on features and benefits and they've got this idea and they try to ram it down everybody's throat. The successful entrepreneurs are the ones that solve problems and they really create a brand rather than just simply a features and benefit list. And that, that's kind of where, where my journey started into entrepreneurship was, was when I became a firefighter. Okay. And yet kind of reverse engineering that like, Obviously, we know what a firefighter does, but what, I mean, what types of problems did you think you would be solving when you took that on? Or like, what was your motivation to, to take that on? I didn't know that there was a problem until I almost died. <laughs> and I was like, oh, <laughs> that, here. that is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. So you got 80 pounds of gear between your uh, self-contained breathing apparatus, the helmet, the, the, the gear itself is probably 20, 30 pounds. When you go into a fire, a couple of things happen. Number one, usually electricity is cut off. Number two, that always happens is there's smoke. And as the smoke starts to develop, it gets darker and darker and eventually becomes black to the point where you can't see your hand in front of your face. And that's what happened to me. I'm working my way down the hallway, assuming that at the end of the hallway, you'll have a staircase or you'll have a door. But I had three walls when I got to the end of the hallway and I'm like, oh, shit, I'm not in the hallway. I'm actually in a walk in closet and I'm trapped and I've only got 20 minutes of air left. And so obviously once the, the pucker factor kind of calmed down and I, I stopped panicking, I, I realized what I needed to do to get out. But when I got outside, I was talking to my captain and I was I wouldn't say I was crying, but I was pretty emotional. And he starts laughing and making fun of me. And he's like, bro, you got to get used to disorientation. That's just part of the process. And I'm thinking like, no, it's not. That doesn't make sense. We're still fighting fire like the caveman did. We get on our hands and knees. We crawl around. We take our axe and we swing it in front of us like a blind person with their cane until we feel something. And then we know that's either a room or a victim or a couch or whatever. So I remember, so that was the problem. Now, what's the solution? The solution's real simple. It's light, but batteries and light bulbs fail when you need them most. You can't always guarantee you're going to get a little bit of light peeking through the window, which is a great thing to have when you're doing a search in a room because you can orient yourself from the window. What if it's at nighttime? So I developed this glow-in-the-dark material. Think of it as like a glow-in-the-dark on steroids. I got a couple of brilliant scientists and developers to work with me. And we were, and I remember it because I had these little glow in the dark tabs on the back of our helmets when I was in the Marines. So at nighttime, you could see the other guy, but it was faint enough that the enemy couldn't see you. I found a way to make this stuff glow brighter and longer than anybody else had done. And I went around the country talking about the problems of disorientation and the lack of accountability in the fire service. Never saw glow in the dark, I sold the problem. And then after I talked to him, I'd go into the fire station. I'd say, hey, my name is Zach. I'm a firefighter from Cincinnati area. Can we go in the bathroom and turn the lights off together? If they didn't <laughs> beat me up, they usually like, oh, that stuff's pretty cool. And um, eventually went to a trade show after six months on the side of the trunk of my car. I made $5,000 in six months. 
And um, I got a soccer tent. I got a couple of my uh, firefighter buddies. You know, we had the sidewalls held together with duct tape and zip tie. We had to create a dark environment. And people started coming in and looking at our stuff. And before you know it, we booked $100,000 in sales within wow. three days. Problem, though. I had no, no money to buy the raw material. I had no manufacturer capability if I had the money to produce it. I had no distribution. I had no real system in place. But I'm a Marine, and the Warriors always accomplish the mission no matter what. And as an entrepreneurship, entrepreneurs is basically the best way to explain what an entrepreneur is. It's you're playing whack-a-mole. You focus on this mole that pops its head up, and by the time you get there, another mole pops its head up, and another mole pops its head up, and it's just you know, constantly doing that. And um, I figured it out. Now I had to refinance my house. I maxed out my credit cards. I had to drain my 401k. You know, it was it was pretty significant. I then raised a couple million dollars in venture capital financing uh, because the, the future wasn't just in the firefighter products. I felt that we could create a exit sign that doesn't need batteries, light bulbs, or electricity. There's over 100 million exit signs in the United States. And guess who inspects them? the firefighters who are already using my products. And over the next couple of years, I grew it into about a $30 million company. So wow. it's uh, been a, a crazy ride, but uh, there was a lot of, a lot of mistakes and a lot of hardship along the way there. Yeah. But you solved a lot of problems, $30 million worth. <laughs> it's uh, you know, when I walk into a home Depot and I see my sign there, or I go into a fire station or drive by a fire truck and I see my product. My heart is filled with so much pride and joy because for me, it's always about the why. The money's just simply a scorecard. It tells you how well you're doing. The why is the, the thing. What difference did you make? Why did they use your product? And for me, it's about safety. It's about showing the way out of the darkness and, and helping to uh, increase um, accountability when, when the you know what hits the fan. Right. So when... I know people listening to this are probably going to think, you know, they hear that you drained your 401k, you maxed out credit cards, you did all this, even though you had the sales, what was that like? How, how do you get over the mental hurdle of, wow, I'm really putting it all literally to the limit, credit cards, draining all uh, excess cash. Did you have mental hurdles with that? And if so, how did you make peace with, with doing such a move outside of just, Hey, I think it's going to work. Um, how do you really make peace with that? Cause I think a lot of people would really have a hard time, you know, when push comes to shove draining everything and going for it like that. So, um, I was in the Marine Corps infantry. Um, it was really, really tough. Um, I then was a firefighter. I've seen dismemberments. I've seen decapitations. I've seen burned babies. I've seen everything you could imagine. Nothing has affected me and my mental uh, health more significantly than being an entrepreneur. It is the most challenging, the most difficult thing. And the first thing someone told me, and it's the greatest advice to give anybody else, is you have to have a tremendous amount of grit to survive as an entrepreneur. There is no handbook. There is no big company like Eli Lilly where we've got 100 years of experience to learn from and, and 20,000 people that are all absolute studs. I was amazed at Eli Lilly. All the people I worked with, every one of them was a stud. When I started my business, it was like the bad news bears. I had the only people I could afford early on were people that had a lot of heart, but they didn't have a, the talent that I needed. So to your point, the first thing is you got to understand that you've got a mission. There's only one way an entrepreneur can fail, and that is to quit. Every single problem that the entrepreneur encounters is solvable if you're willing to do what it takes to solve it, which is refinancing your house, maxing out your credit cards, doing the sacrifices of traveling. I traveled 150 nights on average a year for about six consecutive years. I cannot tell you all the things that I missed and the, 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 what it does to your body and just your lack of sleep and your bad food habits and drinking too much when you're on the road and all those type of things. But that's the sacrifice you have to put in. And there's a saying that goes, you know, entrepreneurs live a few years of their life like nobody else can imagine. So they live the rest of their life like nobody else could. Well, yesterday I spent all day on the beach with my toes in the water doing work in my basically front yard. And that's the result of all that hard work that I had to, to put in before there. But it, it is unbelievably difficult. I cannot stress that enough. And if you're not willing to go all in and make those commitments, then 
you shouldn't be an entrepreneur. Straight up. I love that. A side hustle is fine. That's cool. Yeah. But I mean, if you want to really get to the entrepreneur, every one of these guys from Jobs to Elon Musk to you name it, there were times they put it on the line and still do to this day. Yeah. That's a good point because, you know, people hear, oh, you're, you're an entrepreneur. You run your own business and automatically think, oh, they're sitting kosher. Like they're doing just fine. It's like, no, most entrepreneurs are not super flush right out the gate uh, to where it takes, to your point, years. Like you spent those six years really in the trenches and people don't see that. You know, it's always this, this overnight thing. So it's fun to hear how long you did those, those long nights, all that travel for people to get a snapshot. That's why we love talking to entrepreneurs who have just done it. Like it's hard and, and people don't still grasp what it really is like. So I appreciate you sharing that story. That's amazing. Well, you know, your business is your baby. And if there's only enough food to go around for the baby and not for you, you're going to feed the baby and you're going to starve. And that that's what happened early on. You know, I didn't make any, not only did I make no money the first two or three years, I lived off a credit card debt. So I was mm -hmm. causing money. I was dumping money into the company. So that's one thing. The other question you had asked before is, you know, you see all this money come in, you think you're flush with cash. No, there is a huge, huge issue of what's called profit versus revenue. They do not equal each other. Just because you bring in a million dollars doesn't mean you've got profit. Profit is what's left over when all the bills have been paid. And a lot of people, so I thought, great, I got $100,000 worth of revenue. Well, that probably would have put me out of business had I not been able to tap into my finances. And this is the reason why. We have this thing called the cash conversion cycle. This is something that's so simple that most entrepreneurs have no clue what this is. And it's really, really important. When you sell something, you then have to make something and give it to them. Okay. So you have to pay for the raw materials. So the, when the sale comes in, they're not going to pay you up front. They're going to go ahead and place the order. You're going to be on the hook for the raw materials. You're on the hook to get it produced. A lot of times the manufacturer is not going to take an order that's 1,000 units. They want a minimum of 10,000. So now you're going to put more money into this than you're probably going to even make off of it. Then you finally get all that together. You got to pay your overhead, your staff. We could talk in weeks, if not months in some cases. Then you ship the product to them. Doesn't mean they're going to pay you. First of all, they're supposed to pay you in net 30 or net 60 days. But what happens is the larger the company is, usually the slower they pay. And it's two reasons. Number one, sometimes they gain the system because they know they can do that and they can get the float. But the second thing is it just gets lost in the mix. I mean, a $100,000 deal with a big company, that's decimal dust to them. For me, that's the difference between turning my lights on or not because I'm going to lose the power in my comp uh, a company because I don't have enough money for the utilities. So it's that concept that just because you're selling something doesn't mean you're making money. You can sell yourself out of business. And I've seen that happen before. It's like you got to take one little bite at a time and build off of it. Otherwise, you, you can get in big trouble. That's good. <clears throat> yes. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, you're good. I was say fantastic point of selling yourself out of business. In, in what scenario <clears throat> would you, maybe not you personally, but where bootstrapping would be uh, a good route to go where you do take the cash up front to then turn around and pay for the materials and services? Or would you never I don't, advise that? I don't think it's a good way to go. I think it's the only way to go because no one, no investors are going to invest in you unless you've done something yourself. They want to see that skin in the game. Now, I will tell you that you don't want to do too much. So think of investments like a pyramid. At the bottom of that pyramid is bootstrapping. Now, the good news with bootstrapping is you don't have to share any equity. You don't have to share profits with anybody. The bad news is you can lose all your money if it, if it fails. Then as we start to go up that pyramid, the next thing would be um, bank debt. Now, banks will get their money back. They're going to get collateral. They're going to take your house's collateral, your car, your company, or something like that. So you're going to have to pay that money back. But if you do really well, the bank's not taking a piece of equity. They're not taking a percentage. Then we start to move up that ladder a little bit more. We get to friends and family. The thing with friends and family is now you're using their money. And if you fail, you don't have to pay them back. But it could be uncomfortable going to the Christmas dinner or seeing your friends or whatever else. <laughs> and knowing that, you know, you worked your ass off for this and, and they lost their investment. 
that that's not a good thing. But you, at the end of the day, you don't have to pay it back. But if the company does really well, you are going to have to give them a percentage. It's usually not very much. It's, it's a little bit. Then we get up to the top of the pyramid when we start talking private equity and venture capital. In that situation, you're probably going to get a lot more money in those situations. But you don't have to pay it back. So that's good if the company fails. But if you do well, usually they're going to take a, a bigger piece. And usually they're going to want some type of control. Now everyone says, well, I still own 51%, so I control it. Bullshit. <laughs> you've got a board, you've got investors, even if they own 10% of the company, it's not your decision anymore. You have certain fiduciary legal responsibilities to investors once you start taking that outside money. So it's no longer your deal. Um, yeah, it's great if you can bootstrap it all, but I'm a big fan of, of um, using other people's money if I can. Sure. Well, is Besides like <clears throat> continuing to put money into the business, is there any like big changes, pivots, like process improvements that you can like look back on that made it made the largest impact on your business like at the beginning? Anything you can think of? Every freaking day. <laughs> Every day. Every day I turn in the office, it was a new challenge. It was a new problem or whatever. So when change happens, um, it, it, it changes the order of the, the universe. If you're a Star Wars fan, it changes the order of the force when something happens. And so you got a situation like COVID, okay? My business is out there. I've got to be on the airplane all the time. I got to do meetings. I'll fly from Cincinnati to Seattle for a 15-minute meeting with Starbucks and it costs the company $3,000. It takes me three days between the time I get out there and come back for a 15-minute meeting. Um, COVID happens. Now, all of a sudden, I can use Zoom. I don't even have to put pants on when I'm meeting with them now as long as I'm from the waist up. By the way, I do have pants on just yeah, for right. listening. The entrepreneur is going to look at chaos and not try to put chaos in order, but they're going to embrace, embrace chaos. When you try to put chaos in order, it gets you in, in trouble because you can't. It's chaos. That's its mere basic identity. Is it's, it's, There's no rhyme or reason to it. So for us, we're selling to these big, Fortune 500 companies were selling to these big um, office spaces and, and they won't let you go in during COVID. So what do we do? I look back and I'm sitting on all this plexiglass that I make a certain part of my exit sign with. And I'm like, well, we're going to need to start making barriers because everyone wants to do that. And one of my distributors, Home Depot, said, hey, can you guys do this order for us? And overnight, I became the biggest distributor for Home Depot for COVID protective barriers. And we made wow. more money that year than we probably did in the, the previous couple of years combined. So your point is, is it's constantly improvising, overcoming, adapting, finding what you can do. You got to be scrappy. You got to be creative. You got to think of that stuff. If I was in a big company and I wanted to make a decision to go from selling glow-in-the-dark exit signs to COVID protective barriers, it would have taken months and multiple people and Six Sigma projects and all that stuff to do. As an entrepreneur, I'm like, boom, let's just do it. And within a matter of hours, we were already starting to get that process done. It's this concept. Now, if I fail, that's okay, great. If I failed that first week, we would have found something else. Maybe we would have gotten the hand sanitizer. Maybe we would have gotten into to PPE, but you gotta fail forward you got to keep that constant movement. And that's where you see with the larger companies, they want everything to be perfect. And perfection is the enemy of completion. As an entrepreneur, we just want to get it done. And it doesn't have to be pretty. It doesn't have to be perfect. But our advantages are speed and our agility. And if you remember back to Sunday school, David and Goliath, David beat Goliath, not because he was strong and not because he did what Goliath told him to do. Goliath said, come to me. David didn't do that. He used his speed, his agility, and the weakness of Goliath to take him down. And that's what I challenge all entrepreneurs to think of is how can we use our what we can think are our weaknesses, but they're actually strengths to mm -hmm. counter the bigger companies that are out there. Yes, yeah, good perspective. Outside of COVID, were, have there been any other uh, really surprising challenges or pivots you've had to make that maybe were unforeseeable or kind of took you by surprise a little bit? Yeah, so the, the biggest one of all, and in, in my book, uh, Warrior Entrepreneur, I talk about this a lot, and that is the warrior's journey. So you start with conflict and challenge, like I had at Paris Island, like I had early on in those early years of my business, having to bootstrap and having to fire friends and having to, you know, do everything I could to get some 
manufacturer to carry my line of products, even though I didn't have the um, capability to do their minimum capacity that they needed. But it all, you know, comes to a head in your crucible. Now, the crucible is that crisis in your life. It could be a death. It could be a divorce. It could be a drug or alcohol problem. In my case, my crucible was I was running out of money and I was going to have to declare bankruptcy. Uh, I probably would have lost my house because the bank had, uh, you know, had a guarantee of my house. My investors weren't willing to give me any additional money. I was in trouble. And in that crucible, two things happen. At the bottom of the crucible is the abyss. The abyss stands for darkness and failure and giving up and sometimes even death. Um, the philosopher Nietzsche once said, um, when you stare long enough into the abyss, eventually the abyss will stare back. It will consume you. So my abyss was bankruptcy, failure, loss of my business. Um, the opposite of that is to get through that crucible, you have to transform and conquer. Okay. So the first thing is concrete. You can't just survive your crucible. You have to just blow it out and destroy it. Be like, hey, man, it's not going to happen again. So in my case, we were out of money. What did I do? I had to do something major. And so what I did is I stepped down as CEO of the company, of my own company. It's like literally having a child and saying, I can't be the parent anymore. I need someone else to do it. And I became more of a visionary and founder responsibilities in the company rather than being the CEO. And that's really when the company took off. So you talk about a sacrifice to my pride. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs are very proud people. We're very arrogant. Uh, you know, it should be confident, but it usually ends up being arrogance. And you need that. You need to have that confidence to, to, to be inspire other people when, when they don't have that. But yeah, that, that for me was the biggest challenge was, was actually realizing that the company had grown past my capacity. It wasn't difficult. It was the volume of stuff. I didn't never got bogged down by the big decisions. It was 20 or 30 small decisions a day that were just grinding me down. And if you hire someone that's only 60% as good as you, <clears throat> hire two of them. Then they're doing 20% more work than you are just by the mere capacity alone. And, and that's what I did. And, and thank God it turned out for the better. And how many people do you have uh, working with your company right now? Well, we've outsourced and downsourced, downsized a lot. I think at our peak, we were up to about 10 or 15 employees. I think now we're probably somewhere under that, that, that 10 mark, I would say. Okay. And when did you find a different CEO? I found a couple of them because I'm kind of a difficult person to work with. <laughs> <laughs> the first one was- At least you know. About, that's right. About three years ago. And- uh, um, that was where the real big crucible happened. That was when that we finally had that, that major issue. And it's crazy because like the week or two before things were fine. I mean, we had plenty of cash in the bank. I had, you know, I look at everything as how many payrolls do I have in the bank? You know, if my payrolls X amount of dollars, uh, uh, every two weeks, how much do I have in the bank? Do a quick math equation. Great. I got four payrolls. We're good. So I had like three or four payrolls in the bank. And then all of a sudden we had to pay a couple bills. We knew we had a couple big payments coming in. The big payments didn't come in as quickly as we thought. We got hit with some other emergency type situation that happened. I don't know, it was a chargeback or something. And bam. And that was my fault. I should have kept my eye on that and, and looked at all those things. But I was, I was too busy selling. I was too busy trying to stop the company from going out of business. And as you built your team, and is there anything specific that you learned about yourself, like as a as a people manager, as a leader uh, through that process? Like anything that you can uh, you can highlight? Absolutely, I suck at hiring people. That's what I. <laughs> and you know what? Most entrepreneurs suck at hiring people, and this is the reason why. Entrepreneurs are big personalities. They're bigger than life. They, they've got this vision. They've got this excitement. They sit down with this candidate and they start talking about their vision. And before you know it, 20 minutes has gone by and I'm talking about how I'm going to change the world and all this stuff. And then I look at you and I say, now, what do you think? And you look at me like, oh, that would be great. I'd love to be part of an organization like that. So then I get excited because you're excited. Then you're excited because I'm excited because of your excitement. And before you know it, we're all excited. Everything's great. And then I finally finish up with saying, do you think you'd, you, you'd be able to help me out along this mission? And this guy, absolutely. Great. You're hired. Boom. And so what I end up with is a bunch of yes men, a bunch of people that I never got a chance to figure out if they're good or not. They had heart. They were like ready to work, but they weren't that good. And so I started outsourcing it to an HR firm, you know, 
And then we started doing assessments, which I absolutely, absolutely cannot give you how important those assessments are. You know, there's a bazillion of them out there, but they match up personality and skills to tell you what their position should be in the company, if they're a good fit or whatever. And then what I do is I look at one thing and I think entrepreneurs should really focus on one thing, culture. I'm the last person to interview them. And I just want to make sure they're going to fit into the culture of the organization and, and our ethics and what we stand for and how we operate and what we do. And I've had a couple people that have come to me that are very qualified, but they just didn't have that thing that I couldn't put my thumb on. And, and I didn't feel comfortable extending them offers because I just felt for some reason or another, they weren't going to fit into the culture of the business. Sure. And now do you have a key question or two? Uh, have you kind of refined? Well, it sounds like you have refined that interview process, but do you have a go-to question or two that can really uh, help you tell a lot about a person when they're in that last interview? You know, not really. It's it's more of a conversation. I'm not a big fan of the sell me this pen or what are your five <laughs> all that type of stuff. I mean, you see that a lot. It's just, you know, tell me about yourself. Why do you want to work here? I want to know what they know about me and what they want to know about the company. I want to know that they've done research and that they've, they've you know, taken this seriously. But mostly it just comes down to I'm trying to assess their personality and, and their, uh, their value uh, structure that they have. Gotcha. What is a, what does a healthy company culture look like to you? Is there, I'm sure this is something that you've evolved over time within your own business, but I'm sure that's played a big factor. And, and when you ask that question, why do you want to work? What, what does that look like to you with your business, a healthy company culture? I think each company is a little different and, and there's one company, I won't mention the name, but they, they do a lot of sales and they used to start in books and now they pretty much sell everything <laughs> and everyone thinks it's the greatest company in the world. Um, but their culture is brutal. I mean, you talk to anybody that works there and it is just a grind shop and they grind you out. There's other companies I know that will specifically hire 10 people. Um, it's a um, freight forwarding company. So it's a company that, you know, works with the trucking industry mm -hmm. and they'll tell you when you sit down, Hey, there's 10 of you here. Eight of you aren't going to make it through next month. And only one of you are going to make it to next year. But the one that makes it next year, you're going to make a hundred thousand dollars a year. I'm all about putting the people first. Um, I believe in the reverse um, uh, pyramid from uh, leadership that the leader serves everybody else, not the other way around. The leader's job is to make sure that the culture has every tool that they need to be successful and that the right people are in the right job because that's what, and, and you're recognizing them in public and you're scolding them in private. Um, so it's just for me, my culture is different than other cultures. I like to keep things real laid back and, and not significant. I, I know when I was at Lilly, we had to wear a suit and tie every day and just something simple <clears> as that. I will, you'll never see me in anything other than shorts and flip flops, as long as it's above like 40 degrees out. <laughs> and the reason I do that is because I want to set the example that I want this lit casual laid back. Now, yeah, I dress up when I got to meet a client or something like that. But the last time I wore a suit was at a funeral or a wedding, you know, at, at Lily, I wore one every single day. Uh, so it's, it's just kind of different strokes for different folks. And, and the important thing is you, you shouldn't change the culture. You should find a company that has a culture that um, uh, complements you. And how did you go about, um, I know you said you had to work to find manufacturers. They have minimum orders and things like that. How do you go about finding a manufacturer? Is it just you searched heavily on Google? Did you have someone, hey, I, I know people in that industry? How, how do you find those types of people to kind of make mean, and distribute your product? I don't think Google's really good for B2B. I think it's great for B2C, you know, for consumers that need to find, you know, something. Um, there's really two things. It's word of mouth, you know, talking to other companies that are out there and, and find out who does it. A lot of times, they're like almost frenemies, you know, they'll compete against each other, but then they'll still say, hey, this might be a better job for our competitor because we just don't have the capacity right now. Um, that's one thing. Uh, getting involved in um, peer, peer groups, I think, is really important. Any different types of entrepreneur groups and uh, things to the Chamber of Commerce or through, you know, a group like a Vistage or an ENO or, uh, you know, all those type of things and just learning from other people. And that's really what we've done. It's almost all been word of mouth. That's great. That's fantastic. 
And I know you've mentioned your your book a couple times. Uh, I'd like to get in that uh, since we still have some time. Um, talk to us a little bit about the book. Uh, I know I saw some things on your LinkedIn uh, referencing, you know, that that warrior's path. So let's let's dive into that some. Sure. So, you know, the book was supposed to be my autobiography, but like I said, you know, nobody cares about my autobiography except my mom and my wife, probably. So <laughs> as I was sitting down with the editors, he said, look, what is the story? What is it you're trying to get across? What is your story? And I look back to, the, again, the struggles I had in school. So many people telling me I wasn't going to be successful and I was going to fail. And it's funny because when I drive by them in my Ferrari and I downshift to second gear and it gets really loud, I can't hear them talking shit about <laughs> me. Anyway, um, so it was that warrior's journey. And the journey is resistance and challenge. So the book starts off, it's in kind of three sections. Section one is the science of adversity. What happens to you when you're in an emergency? So we have the system called the parasympathetic and sympathetic system. And have you two, either of you ever been in a car accident before? Uh, not like super serious okay. or anything. So if you're ever in a car accident, usually more serious, what you'll find is right before the moment of impact, everything slows down. And you'll hear this from people talk about it over and over in a real near life situation, near death situation. And what that's doing is your body's flooding its, yourself with adrenaline and cortisol and all these type of things to cause more oxygen to go to your brain, to increase your breathing, to open your pupils up wider, to grab this. And that slowing down effect is basically your body creating these superpowers to process what's happening because they know what's happening. Now, after you have that car accident or after that, then the opposite happens, which is your body's natural way of slowing that down. Because if you have that adrenaline flowing through, you'll eventually have a heart attack if it stays in too long. And that's why you'll you'll find people that'll just spontaneously just start crying. Um, I had a dear friend of mine uh, was out on our beach and, and got attacked by a shark. I mean, it was crazy. Jeez. The guy just literally, it didn't bite him, but it, it came at him two or three times. He kicked him. Now this guy's a tough Marine. He's force recon, which is our special forces division, the Marines. And when he got out of the water, he was like ready to fight. His eyes were all dilated. And then all of a sudden he started crying like a baby. And it was the weirdest thing ever because it was like finally that stuff had come down. So that's the first part of the book is talking about how that and how we can master that. An example for us would be we're probably not going to get attacked by a shark. Hopefully we'll never be in a car accident. But you've got a big meeting coming up with this investor that's going to give you $10 million dollars. And on the way there, you spill coffee on your shirt or you lose your thumb drive that's got the presentation on it. You're going to have that same effect that person did getting attacked by the shark or the car accident, that, that emergency. How do you deal with it? So then what I do is I go through and I interview tons of people and I broke the book down in different categories, uh, 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 morals, serenity, grit, leadership, um, how to overcome adversity, how to be um, honor. And I go through stories, both in the people in the military, but also entrepreneurs, uh, examples like Thomas Edison, which I didn't know this until I wrote the book. It, you know, he failed a thousand times trying to create the light bulb. And someone when I asked him, said, what does it feel like to fail a thousand times? He said, I didn't fail a thousand times. I, I found a thousand different ways not to do it until I found the way to do it. Mm -hmm. WD-40. It's called WD-40 because it took them 40 tries to get it right. The WD stands <laughs> for water displacement. And it was that. the 40th chemical formulation that they used to get it to work. Oh, wow. So we get into that. And then the final part of the book is, is kind of my story. I kind of weave my story in and out and give examples of, of what happened to me. The book starts with me dying almost a year ago to this date of COVID. Um, I stopped breathing three times. I was in the ICU for almost two weeks. Wow. And just talking about that literal abyss <clears throat> of not being able to breathe and blacking out and falling down the tunnel that everyone talks about, I, it happened to me. Um, and so my goal originally for the book was for entrepreneurs. The book is not for entrepreneurs. The book is for anybody that wants to get through adversity in their life. And as an entrepreneur, I can guarantee you, you're going to have adversity. As a warrior, as a soldier, as a Marine, you're going to have adversity. And these are just stories to show you how to overcome them and how to make them make you grow. That's awesome. And how long did it take you to, to write the book? Um, you know, I physically started writing it about two and a half, three years ago. I got probably about 50, 60% of it done. 
And then I had this uh, crazy delusion to run for politics. And then I actually <laughs> had the mistake of actually getting elected and that really screwed things up. So I, everything got put on hold at that point in time. And then um, again, it was December of last year when I was dying of COVID. I'm like, man, this is the, I got to get this thing done. And then I busted it out like within the next two or three months after that. That's awesome. What, uh, what kind of politics, what, what position? It's just city council, you know, local okay. city council and trying, okay. trying try to battle the, the other people, if you will. <laughs> how'd, how'd you like it? You know, I always wanted to get into politics mainly because I wanted to make a difference. I see our community is becoming so divided and so hostile right now. And then you throw in all the other stuff that that's happened um, just within the last year between COVID and everything else. And so I really ran on a position and I, I'm, I'm purple. I'm not red or blue. I mean, I'm, I'm about as moderate as you can get. I've got views on very both sides of them. But there's a contingency of people that have been woke here in the last couple of years that are really taking our country in a direction that's very concerning for me. And that is this whole socialistic movement, this anti-cop movement, this type of thing. And, and we started seeing that in our community and I decided I had to fight against it. And, and I did, I, I was able to block a lot of it, but um, it just, it got nasty. And um, you know, they, they say politics is like sausage. It tastes great, smells great. But the first time, uh, if you ever go to a sausage factory and see how they make it, you probably never eat it again. And the same thing was kind of happening on that standpoint. Yeah, fair enough. But I checked the box off. You know, I did it. I wanted to give back to my community. I did make a difference. I protected mm -hmm. our police. I protected us from having some of these crazy things that they were proposing. And, um, you know, I, I'm proud of um, the service I provided. Yeah. And that's it. You're trying it. You know, you don't know until you get into it. And it's, you know, you see it from the outside. It's like, oh, you know, might be something kind of fun, interesting. It's like, no, <laughs> no. My my, my passion right now is exactly what we're doing right now today. Yeah. I am on this journey. I want to start a new movement, this warrior framework movement, which is to teach other up and coming entrepreneurs, small business owners, people that want to do side hustles, how we can use those warrior traits to accomplish your mission and, and achieve the goals that you want to do. Um, I do work down here. We call it the low country around Hilton Head, where I'm living now with a lot of veterans and police officers and firefighters coaching them on how to either build a business or grow their business. Um, I've got the book, obviously we've got the conversation we're having today and a lot of other podcasts, but the really exciting thing is I'm starting a warrior, um, basically boot camp framework uh, for entrepreneurs where we're going to take you through uh, online training, one-on-one -on -one coaching workbooks, workshops, seminars to help you take an idea mature it into a business plan, pitch it to entre uh, investors, get investments, and then grow and scale it from there. And that should be uh, starting here probably in the next month or two. Um, all that information is available <coughs> on my website right now, which is www.warriorentrepreneurbook.com. Warriorentrepreneurbook.com. If you just put the uh, fill out your information on the contact us section at the bottom, I'll make sure I add you to the mailing list when we're ready to launch that, uh, that course. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I like a that. lot of moving parts. Giving, giving back and helping a lot of people at once, especially with like podcasts too. Like podcasts is one of those unique platforms where your words can go out to thousands of people listening at the same time. So I think it's, it's the wider impact you're having. And this is the greatest time in humankind to be an entrepreneur with an idea and a internet connection you can create a multi-million dollar company within a matter of 30, 45 minutes and be immediately up and running and selling. The templates that are out there on websites and the ability to distribute through places like Amazon and eBay and those other things to do a podcast. I mean, think about before the internet, how difficult it would get for people to see it. You'd have to put a tape into a radio station. They probably wouldn't even play it for you now. Again, you guys could be sitting around playing beer pong and say, let's start a podcast. And by tomorrow morning, you've got, you know, 100 listeners and the shit's out there flowing. So, I mean, that's right. it's just a great time to be in business right now. Right. Yeah. And did I see you had a podcast going too? Yeah. So, I right? just launched my podcast. It's called The Warrior's Voice. It's available on all, you know, the iTunes and, and uh, you know, all the 
Google and everything else. Um, I'm doing it with a fellow Marine. He's a full bird colonel. He's actually still on active duty. And it's been really, really exciting. I'd love to have you guys on sometime uh, once we to. realize what the heck we're doing. But uh, <laughs> um, all we do is talk. We had a guy on yesterday that uh, was in a gang in East St. Louis growing up, served time in the penitentiary, and now is um, an amazing wrestling coach. Is uh, teaches people about his journey with suicide and alcoholism and drug abuse and inspiring kids i mean that's the kind of guy i want because he can he made it through his crucibles we had another guy that that we interviewed that was um a chaplain in the military and had been through combat and seen all the type of things that were there just fascinating fascinating uh discussions that, that we've had it's great yeah <clears throat> are all of your episodes with <clears throat> with guests or do you have episodes where it's just you and the colonel kind of talking back and forth yeah, so we're, we're finding our way. The first two are just the two of us kind of talking about our goals and what we did. And then every episode after that has had, uh, we've had guests. Awesome. Oh, that's awesome. And it, it really ranged from, you know, professional musicians to, again, Navy chaplains to uh, a gentleman, uh, really, really tough uh, discussion. This last one, I haven't released it yet, but um, he lost a son to cancer. And then two years later, his other son committed suicide. Oh. And then a year later, his wife, kidnapped his daughter, had him locked up in a mental institution and then cleaned out the house and all of his bank account. And Jeez. he's the most friendly guy you've ever met in your life. His smile is like contagious. And I'm like, how the hell do you do that? And he's right. just like, look, man, it's, it's about how you put it out there and what you, it's not what happens to you. And I'm just like, I mean, any one of those things would, would kill somebody. And, and he's gone through it all with a smile on his face. Yeah. Wow. Getting set up in a mental institution, though, I got to get some reparations for that. I'm going to be a little so pissed his, off about that. One. His wife called the cops and said he's suicidal and homicidal. So she said the magic words. Yeah. He's having lunch and the cops barge in the restaurant, take him out in handcuffs. He gets the 72 hours in the ER, which everyone knows about. But then instead of releasing him, they send him to a state mental institution, put him in leg shackles. The whole time he's like, what's going on? He's like, there's yeah. nothing. And um, he said they could have kept him there indefinitely. And when he finally got a hold what? of his wife, his wife is like, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. And then obviously they got it straightened <laughs> out after a couple of days. He comes home and all the furniture has gone. The cars are gone. He goes to uh, his wife had his wallet, so he didn't even have his wallet with him. So he, he doesn't have any ID, nothing. And then, um, you know, it's just it's crazy. He still hasn't seen his daughter now. It's been over uh, two years. Good doesn't know what his wife is, doesn't know where his daughter is. And, you know, that that's the warrior's journey. That's the yeah. stuff that you can take the hits. And again, think about the the rhino skin that he's developed as a result of this. And that's where I go through it. So to kind of wrap up, I, I went to this really exciting thing. Um, I was the guest of President Obama, there was only 10 people from the U.S. that were representing the United States for the Global Entrepreneur Summit. It was at, um, in Stanford. They had uh, you know, 40 countries represented, top 10 entrepreneurs from each of the 40 countries. So we had Zuckerberg, we had Elon Musk, we had all the top guys up on stage. And someone asked the question, does it have to be this difficult? And all these guys said, yes, it does have to be this difficult early on, because if it's not difficult early on, you're not going to have the experience to handle the real challenges that happen later on that people think are good problems. You know, again, I give you guys an order for $10 million. Oh, that's great. No, probably not. Unless you've had <laughs> the challenges to deal with the $100,000 orders and the million dollars orders ahead of time that were stressful, you're not going to be prepared for that big stuff. And it was just such a lesson for me is, yeah, it needs to be that hard. That That's the way you you grow and you, you iron sharpens iron, which I say over mm -hmm. and over again. Yep. Yep. Uh, Tim, any other questions? I know we have our final one for, for Zach, um, any others? No, I think I'm good on my end. Okay. Uh, I did want to, I was curious, future <clears throat> of your company, any other products that you see your, uh, your tech being really involved in any other industries outside of uh fire and and safety things like that uh any other avenues and niches you see an opportunity for your tech you know it's interesting because the the glow stuff is incredible and i've been approached with every possible idea over 10 years and i've seen them all and um what it comes down to it's not the product 
it's it's the distribution that's what makes a company successful you have the greatest product in the world if you can't distribute it it ain't worth anything so our focus now is not necessarily us developing product but developing distribution channels we're now live with home depot with ferguson granger we've got a couple really big name companies and so what we're trying to do is find strategic partners that have their product but can't quite distribute it yet and see if we can work through our platform to our distribution channel. So the real future is not going to be a new glow in the dark, whatever. Mm -hmm. The future is going to be us partnering with some company that has a special spray that kills COVID or that, you know, helps clean whatever. And then we can then build our marketing plan and training and development around that and, and sell it to uh, our distributors. Gotcha. I like it. Yeah. Uh, so Zach, we always like to ask um, all of our guests our kind of last question, and that's how you would like to be remembered when it's all said and done. How do you want people to remember Zachary Green? So it's funny. My mom literally every day when she dropped me off to school and we still talk about today, she said, when someone mentions your name, you should make sure they smile and they should smile because they know you did something good. You helped them out. You were nice to them. You you know, from the time that kid that was sitting by himself at the lunch table and you went over and sat next to him to making a difference. So for me, it's, you know, if you hear my name after I'm gone and, and you smile, then I know I've done something right. Love it. Love it. Zach, thank you so much for your time today. And I appreciate you reaching out. I'm glad we got to talk on the phone and, and really set this up. This was a lot of fun getting to know you, man. Yeah, thank you. Great, guys. Have a wonderful day and thanks for your time. All right. All right. Thanks. You as well, Zach.